Welcome to the Group Practice Exchange Podcast, a podcast for psychotherapy group practice owners. I'm your host, Maureen Warbach. This episode is sponsored by the Group Practice Owners Summit, the first annual Group Practice Owners Conference in Chicago. The first one is this July 2019, and right now there are still openings for speakers and sponsors. For more information, visit www.grouppracticebuilders.com forward slash summit. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Group Practice Exchange podcast. And today I'm really excited because I have the CEO and co-founder of Radical Candor, Jason Rosoff, with me today. Hey, Jason, how are you? I'm doing really well. Great to be here. Yeah. So um, as most listeners here will know, they know about Radical Candor. Most of them have also read the book. Um, and many of them are implementing the strategies. So I thought it was uh, a great idea to get you on and talk a little bit about some of the, you know, the main points of Radical Candor for those that may not uh, have read it yet, but then also to kind of dig a little bit deeper, especially with our profession, um, not really getting that business background and, and leadership and staff management background. I think that tends to be one of the areas we struggle with most. So um, it'll be fun to get a perspective, uh, your perspective on this, since that's kind of your thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Excited to share. Um, so why don't you just start with what Radical Candor is for those that don't know um, what it is? Sure. So Radical Candor is uh, it's a framework, uh, but it's also sort of a an approach to building relationships and uh, through those relationships, doing really great work together. Um, Kim kind of came out of this idea that we, the most interesting things human beings accomplish, we accomplish uh, not alone, right? We accomplish as a group uh, of people. And it turns out that getting a group of people all sort of like working towards the same goal and feeling engaged and excited about it is a real challenge. And that's why there's an entire profession around management. And so Kim spent a bunch of time over the course of her career really trying to think about what what is it about the relationships that we have at work that make them work and what's so hard about those relationships um, and what gets in the way of us doing the amazing things that we're trying to do together. So that's fundamentally what Radical Candor is. It's a, it's a way to approach uh, working with people that helps you build stronger relationships and do great things. Awesome. So uh, one of the things I'd read, and it wasn't in the book, it was either something that I had listened to from you um, or somewhere on the Radical Candor website at some point, was the idea that it's not really a, a natural or normal uh, or common act for us to act radically candor. Can you um, explain that? Because I feel like most of us in, in our industry sort of feel bad that we don't know how to, how to do it. And um, I think it, it's a nice sort of uh, feeling to see that it's kind of not the norm to be this way. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the the framework is uh, uh, boiled down to a two-by-two two axis. And on the vertical axis, we have uh, care personally. And on the horizontal axis, we have challenge directly. And so if you can kind of visualize it, in the upper right-hand quadrant, we have radical candor. That, that's where you're combining caring personally and challenging directly. And the reason why this is such an unnatural act is like uh, there there are actually a bunch of different reasons, but I think it boils down to a couple of things. So on the care personally side, um, 
I think at work, there's something about being at work that makes it harder to care personally. We often sort of have this perception that at work, we need to like be professional, be our professional selves. And for a lot of us, being professional really translates into sort of like leaving your emotions and humanity and like the best parts of yourself like aside and and sort of like behaving like some kind of robot. Or I like to think of it as like putting on a professional suit of armor. And when we do that, as, as all of the people who are listening to this uh, podcast will know, it's like that takes energy. That projection takes takes energy. And one of the things that takes energy away from is really being able to genuinely care about the people around you. And so we put ourselves in this professional environment. We need to see ourselves as authoritative. We need to see ourselves. We think we need to see ourselves as authoritative. We think other people need to see us as authority figures. And as a result, it sort of pushes us down this care personal axis. And so that's one thing that makes it hard. And on the challenge directly side, I think this will probably, uh, the reasons why this is hard is sort of more naturally, uh, will occur more naturally to your audience is just like the, no one, it's uncomfortable to challenge people directly, right? Like there are lots of messages that we receive over the course of our lives that basically say something along the lines of, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? This idea that, you shouldn't rock the boat. You shouldn't disturb the peace. Like all of those things are negative qualities. When in fact, we know that sometimes the best thing we can do for people is to, to disturb the, the sort of place that they're sitting, to like not allow them to continue to be comfortable doing something that is harmful to them. And I think harm is a strong word, um, but maybe uh, another way to think of it is like something that's going to get in the way of their success. Um, but that's part of your job as a leader. Uh, and so like the combination of these two things, both of them, executing on both of them at work is really, really difficult. Um, and one of the king things that, that Kim did so well is ha- actually help describe what the alternative behaviors look like yeah. so that we have a better sense of, um, you know, when we're not being radically candid, what are we being? Because like, it's not just the goal to be radically candid. It's also a goal to be able to identify the alternative behaviors and work to overcome them. Um, yeah, those, um, there's three of them, right? Yes. Right. And so, I, I saw myself, uh, this was what, one of the areas where I was like, wow, I, I see myself in this one, but it was so, it's so nice. I mean, it feels bad initially because you're like, I'm not going to fall into being obnoxiously aggressive or have ruinous empathy or whatever. Um, and then all of a sudden, as, as it's being described, you're like, Ooh, I, I see myself in a little bit of this. But what's nice, though, is that once you see yourself in it, it kind of uh, lays out how to get out of it. Yeah, 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 exactly. So just really quickly for your audience, the other quadrant. So when you challenge directly, but you fail to care personally, uh, we call that obnoxious aggression. <laughs> uh, and, you know, this is, this, is, this is the jerk quadrant. And the thing is, uh, you're not actually a jerk. You're some, like sometimes you behave like a jerk. Like this, this, it's really important to understand, like the framework is not meant to describe people. It's not a personality test but it is uh, meant to describe behavior that we adopt from time to time. And the good news or bad news, depending on how you look at this, is like all of us will behave in all of these ways at some point. So first is obnoxious aggression. That's where you challenge, but you don't show that you care. Then we have where you fail to challenge directly or to care personally, and we call that manipulative insincerity. Uh, Manipulative insincerity is like the source of most of the stories we love to hate about work. Uh, so this is like backstabbing behavior or really passive aggressive behavior. Um, and on the light end of things, it's sort of like the false apology. Yeah. Uh, 
right? The, the idea that you get into a disagreement with someone and you feel really strongly, but at some point you're sort of like, I can't take, I, I just, I give up. Like, and you say something like, you know what, you're, you're right. I'm wrong. But you, you know, you're not wrong. Right. <laughs> you know, they're not right. Uh, and so like you, you have, you have failed to care enough about them personally to help them um, do, uh, do something better than they're planning to do. And you've failed to challenge them directly in that moment. Um, and then finally, you have the quadrant where like most people wind up making most of their mistakes. And that's where you care personally, but you fail to challenge directly. And we call that ruinous empathy. Yep. That's where uh, I fell into. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of us will find ourselves here. Like the reason you find yourself here is because you're trying to protect the other person. You think like, I don't want to embarrass them. I don't want to demotivate them. I don't want to make them upset. Um, and so I'm just not going to tell them this thing, but it turns out like that's, that's not always a very kind thing to do. And the example that we use to make it sort of obvious is like this example of someone with spinach in their teeth, right? Like you have, you've done something that is like causing you to be embarrassed and you are sitting in a room of people of your peers, maybe or friends, um, or colleagues, and you uh, have this hunger spinach in your teeth and at some point you go into the restroom and you realize, like you look in the mirror, you realize that you have a hundred spinach in your teeth, right? But no one has told you about it. And like, how do you feel about those people? Like, yeah. they're, they're kind of jerks, right? Like why would they let you walk around like sort of embarrassing yourself? Um, and that's the way that we, we think about ruinous empathy is like when we know something that would really help the other person to know, but we avoid telling them because internally we're convincing ourselves we're like doing them a favor. That's the definition of ruinous empathy. Yeah. And um, I think especially in our line of work, being therapists who, um, you know, help people, that is not typically a strong suit of ours as leaders. Um, and I think most of us probably fall into that ruinous empathy category because we don't um, want to hurt people's feelings, even though there are ways to give feedback um, without hurting people's feelings. But I think we just don't get that sort of training, um, which is why this book is so great. Um, I want to uh, step back. I wrote something down as you were talking um, about taking off that suit of armor. Um, how Do you have any tips for how to take off that suit of armor? Because I feel like this is something that we struggle with as being prof professionals, people with master's and doctorate degrees who then also own a business who feel like they have to um, give some sort of appearance of being in leadership, uh, uh, not necessarily know-all, but that there's some level of uh, professionalism that we feel like we have to display with our employees um, that I can see um, can be an obstacle for, for connecting um, with our staff. And so I don't know if there's any kind of um, tips that you have for removing that suit of armor or what looks appropriate for removing that suit of armor so that we can kind of just be there with them. Yeah, I, I think what what's interesting is like often uh, the way that managers can best do this is the way that therapists, um, people who practice like talk therapy, like spend a lot of time practicing, which is like actually being present with somebody else. It's not necessarily about self-disclosure, right? <laughs> like that's not what I'm saying. You don't have to tell a person everything about your life, but like sometimes you have to tell people some things about your life. Like if you have something going on where it's going to like make you unreliable for some period of time, for example, like let's say it's a, there's a health issue. You don't have to say what the health issue is, but I think you have to be able to be willing to be vulnerable enough to say like, hey, I'm not going to be able to pull my the weight I usually pull around here um, because I've got something going on at home or whatever. 
um, or I'm just really stressed out at work or whatever it is. So part of it is sort of like finding that amount of like, uh, 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 of disclosure, which helps people understand that you are not sort of some automaton, but you're like actually a living, breathing human being that's going to be affected by the things that go on in and around uh, their uh, their lives, not just uh, things at work. So that's one one way to think about this. I think the other way to think about it is like um, when you are confronted with someone else's strong emotion like responding to that with humanity uh because i think sometimes in the work context we we get into our heads like oh this is work and so we shouldn't like don't take it personally this is like just business and that's just like a it's a horrible it's a horrible yeah. thing to do to people <laughs> um and i think this is probably a place where um, therapists might do better, but I think when we are under pressure, when human beings are under pressure, especially at work, um, it can feel like a nuisance to deal with somebody else's emotions or emotional response. It can feel I, frustrating. I got to tell you, I think we actually may not be that good at this because um, we often, what I'm seeing through just in my consulting is that people connect their business with them. And so if they feel like they're getting feedback um, one way or another from their employee about the business as a whole or their job that they take it personally because they feel they're so connected their business and who they are as a person is, is almost one. Um, and it's hard for them not to either become uh, defensive or feel like the fact that this person is having a hard time in the with their job or within the business, that means that they must not like them as a person or as a leader. Um, so I feel like a lot of uh, group practice owners connect too much with their business as if they're one and the same. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think like the, the, the way when I'm in that position, when I, when I feel like that's that pang of sort of like personal responsibility, I, like one of the things I think about is like, you know, I don't, I don't control this other person's emotions. Like this isn't a direct res like response to something I did. And the goal like in my head is like when I start to feel that emotional response is like to get for me to get curious. Like if I'm in the leadership position, it's for, like my goal then is to like, okay, to get curious one about my own reaction. Like, why am I feeling the way that I'm feeling? But two, like, let me spend some time really listening to this person because one of the best things that I can do is actually take the time to hear them out and find out if there's a way that I can be helpful to them or I can support them in solving their own problem. Like, uh, I think the the like feeling like everything's your responsibility is exhausting. <laughs> it's just like completely overwhelming. Uh, and often it makes us miss the fact that like, you know, maybe they're telling us something that we don't actually have to fix. Maybe all we have to do is like understand the problem and then support them in making an adjustment to fix it. Yeah. I You touched on um, one of the things that I felt most strongly about when learning about radical candor, which is the idea of curiosity. Um, I think that really changed a lot in how I take um, constructive criticism or feedback of any kind is being able to look at it right from the beginning from a place of curiosity um, because it separates it separates you a little bit from from the issue or concern or whatever it is. So I, I love that idea and I think if anyone can take um, anything away, it's uh, just with our industry and, and the type of people who are, you know, owning group practice group practices is to start looking curiously at 
the feedback that you're getting versus um, looking at it from a perspective of, you know, they're just wrong. They don't see it right. Or I'm a horrible leader, you know, whatever end of the spectrum that they, that they're going on. Um, that idea of curiosity can makes a huge difference um, in separating kind of your emotions from the, the issue or the problem. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So um, I wanted to see uh, with regards to uh, ruinous empathy, because I feel like that is more often than not what we're going to fall into as mental health leaders. Um, yep. Do you have any tips for people, for group practice owners who um, are falling into that category, ways to um, navigate out of that? Yeah. So most of this is about changing perspective. I, I think the, the thing that drives us to ruinous empathy is this feeling like um, is essentially the desire to protect someone's short-term feelings, uh, often at the cost of their long-term success or like your collective long-term success. And so part of it is just like taking a step back from this moment and saying like, okay, let me play this out. Let, let's say this behavior continues or let's say this like low quality work output continues for a month or six months. What's going to happen to the practice? Especially as a small business owner, I feel like you have to remember that your job is not just to care for one individual's feelings, but it is to care for like the success of the overall practice and everybody's ability to thrive in that environment. And so the the way that I think about this is like all managers have this sort of like triangle of responsibility. So one responsibility is to the individuals that you work with um, or that work for you. One responsibility is to the overall success of the business and another responsibility um, is the overall success of the team. So like those things are like, the, the, that's the triangle that you're trying to balance. And oftentimes what we don't realize is like, just by protecting that one person, we are taking away from the overall capability of the team to succeed or the overall capability of the business to succeed. And so like, that's not kind to that person or to the other people that work for you because if that person, if that behavior or the low work output is going to cause you to have to fire that person at some point, um, and it's correctable now, like, why wouldn't you tell them today? Like, give them the opportunity to fix the thing that they're trying to, uh, that they're not doing well now, as opposed to, you know, six months from now being so frustrated with them that you feel like you need to fire them. Um, it's often this sort of like short term versus long term trade off that we don't do well. I mean, human beings, like as a species, we don't do this trade off particularly well, right? We don't, we don't, we're not as good at saving for retirement as we should be. We're not as good at like protecting the environment as we should be. Like all of these things that it's like short term, there's like a lot of benefit to not doing them. And long term, there's a lot of risk to not doing them. Like we tend to focus on those short term things. And so it's totally normal. Um, but you kind of have to find a way to take that step back and say, like, am I doing this? because it is in their best interest? Am I actually not telling them because it's in their best interest? Or am I not telling them because I don't want to feel uncomfortable for the few minutes or hours or days or whatever that it's going to take to sort of resolve this issue? That's a good point. Um, I'm going to literally swing over into another um, sure. part yeah. of, of radical candor, which is the idea of um, rock stars and superstars. Okay. This is something that um, was a huge game changer for me and actually shifted how I, um, I guess in terms of group practice work, there isn't, if you're not creative in how you think as a group practice owner, um, you would, you would feel like there isn't much movement for your clinicians, right? You, you're a 
clinician yourself, and then you hire other clinicians who all just see clients. Um, there isn't much of like teams of different departments or anything like that. It's usually therapists seeing clients and you're a therapist who also maybe still sees clients and you just are in charge of hiring and bringing on those people at a basic level. That's how it feels. Um, and it wasn't until I um, started reading Radical Candor that I learned about the idea of rock stars and superstars and that, you know, one of the issues that a lot of group practice owners has have is that they hire people and then they find out, you know, really quickly within a year, under a year that that person leaves and either starts their own solo practice and, and maybe takes the clients that they've gotten through the group practice and kind of starts their own thing. Um, and, and sometimes that's just that person, you know, it's meant to happen. And what I've, uh, kind of learned with the idea of this rock stars and superstars is that superstars tend to be people like, you know, me and you and any other group practice owner who wanted to move up and up and kind of own something. Um, but there's ways to kind of get creative within your business, even if it doesn't seem like there are ways. Um, just, I feel like in our business, it just seems so obvious that there's just, everyone's at the same level. Everyone does the same thing. Um, but after reading about this idea I, I shifted and started bringing up people who were that superstar type into management positions. Um, I have a multiple locations in my group practice. We have multiple locations. And so now we have site supervisors and I have a clinical director. And so I've been able to, um, you know, lift people up into leadership positions um, because of this idea, which kind of um, um, helps or uh, satisfies that need that those superstars have to move up. So I'm telling a long story to to say that the idea of rock stars and superstars made a huge difference. Um, can you talk a little bit about that for those that might not know what those two terms are? Sure. So the idea here is that um, this this is about people who are performing well. And often when people are performing well, we don't know how to think about their... Um, their trajectories and how to how to best support their development, um, and part of the reason why it's so hard is because there are some people who are super ambitious at work. They're, they they want to grow, they want to develop, they want the next big challenge or opportunity. That's just like the attitude they have about work, um, and that's what uh, we refer to as as your superstars. And in some sense, like you have to plan for the for the very real possibility that superstars will not be in your orbit for very long, right? They won't necessarily be working with you for very, very long. Um, and that's okay. Uh, but the question is, how can you keep them around as long as possible? And how can you get them delivering value um, to the or to the business, um, as well as helping them develop? And then you have this other group of people who maybe they have the ambitions outside of work, maybe they're really happy with what they do. Um, but they're really good at what they do. Uh, they they consistently produce strong results. Um, and that's what we, we call our rock stars. And the difference between these two is like, what's going to make one, what's going to make a superstar happy and what's going to make a rock star happy in terms of like their overall development are quite different. And it sounds like the, you know, the challenge might be, um, in group practice might be with superstars who are sort of like moving up and out. But my guess is that um, there are lots of ways that you could think about structuring things so that uh, superstars and rock stars are getting more opportunities. So even if you don't have multiple site locations, um, one way to like reward a superstar is to have them 
you know, train or teach other people like some new thing that they're learning. Um, that's a that's a really common thing. And one it, one really great way to re- reward a rock star um, might be with lots of like work flexibility because like they have some other priority outside of work. Um, but you know, like hey, on the days that they're here, they're going to do such great work. Um, those are those are two very different rewards in my um, and. And they might help you keep both of those people who are performing really well around for longer. Um, but yeah, it, it is like it, it's like a fundamentally difficult thing, I think, because for people who, especially for managers who, let's say, uh, you know, entrepreneurs tend to be tend to be in like the superstar category. So someone who's going to like start a business, like they're hungry and ambitious. Um, they want more opportunity. Like they're sort of like a natural sort of, uh, it's not causal, but like correlative correlation between uh, entrepreneurs and, and superstars. And one problem that they have is often that when they think about how to best sort of like manage and uh, reward and develop the people on their teams, they think about like, well, what would I want? Uh, right. And that's often like not what your team member would want. You have to be really careful uh, not to get the wrong impression. Like a really concrete example of that is like um, I had uh, uh, this uh, salesperson who was working for me uh, who was like really, really great, but they had um, a, a really active um, hobby outside of work. They were like really super into rock climbing. Um, they customers loved this person. They thought. Um, he was great. Uh, and, uh, at some point I need to like add more people to the team. And when I tried to, t- to add more people to the team, like the first thing I did was offer him the job of being like a manager of that team. It's like, you know, that's not really for me. Like, uh, it's not what I want. And in my head, I'd like formed this judgment of him as sort of like lazy, like not wanting opportunity when in fact that was like <laughs> just completely the wrong way to think about it. Um, because he continued to produce great work and all I needed to do is like get out of his way and find someone who could lead the team. Uh, and that would have been a great result, but unfortunately I wound up pissing that guy off and, uh, well, it didn't end so well. That's, I, I love, uh, hearing lessons from people who are kind of experts in this field, um, is that we all make these kind of mistakes. And as you were talking, I was, everything was like lighting up inside of me because I know there were a handful of times um, prior to learning about this concept that I really took how I felt and I, I would consider myself one in that um, superstar category where I, when, when I wanted to give someone a, um, more work or something that was a, a sort of promotion of sorts or something that highlighted them and they weren't interested, I was like, why would you not want to do like, what, why would you not want to do this? And it really, you know, similar in thinking to you is, I thought, well, maybe they don't actually like working here or, you know, and I went down this rabbit hole of, of thinking more negatively about the person um, because they didn't appreciate the fact that I wanted to give them, more, you know, um, and so after reading this, it's, it's, it's changed how I, how I look at everyone that I have. And I've, um, you know, those, those rock stars who typically kind of get overlooked because they're essentially kind of just doing their job, but doing yep. it well. And we assume that everyone's supposed to do their job well. Um, it's yep. shifted how I uh, recognize those people who are really doing doing that work well. Um, and it also has helped because I now have conversations with people as my business grows um, to see, you know, really w- what do they want as the business grows. And um, I've been pleasantly surprised by people who 
uh, were more superstar-ish than I thought. And I um, have been surprised by people who I thought were more ambitious because they were doing ambitious things outside of my group practice where I thought, oh yeah, they're totally going to want to be a supervisor. They're totally going to want to be, you know, whatever. Um, and it wasn't the case. And now that I, I have those tools from this book, it's um, really sort of shifted how, how I approach things with my staff. So I, I love this idea. Um, does, uh, I guess in thinking about just what we do, I know different businesses, um, this, this, would be an obvious yes for, and maybe it's, you're going to say yes uh, in this case as well. But in um, our line of work being mental health practitioners who run a group practice, um, do you find it important that we consider rock star, superstar um, mentality as we're hiring and interviewing people? Um, is it important to have a blend? Um, does it not really matter if they're really working one-on-one -on -one with clients? Um, does it matter only if we're thinking of growing and expanding? I don't know. I'm kind of thinking like out loud here with uh, kind of the mix of ideas of one common thing is that people um, often, uh, group practice owners often fear that people are uh, leaving too quickly, which might play a role in them being superstars that may or may not. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of them do end up leaving because they want to start their own practice. Um, but also, um, I don't know. I, th I feel like there's this, kind of assumption maybe in our field that it would be better to have a bunch of rock stars, people who don't want to move up and out um, that will stay more long-term and do the work that they are supposed to do and do it well. Um, I guess I want to get your feedback of what you think when, when it comes to like a healthy workplace, um, if it's good to have a blend or if it's good to, you know, think about what you have and, and let's say you have a lot of superstars to kind of gauge your interviewing process on for finding more of a rock star or vice versa. Sure. So I think the the one the the one like piece of framing that we didn't talk about here is like in order to know whether or not someone's a superstar or a rock star, like you kind of have to ask them what their yeah. career ambitions are, right? Like the part of this is and maybe that's the most essential part of all of this actually, is actually having real conversations with people about what it is that they're trying to do. And I think having those as part of an interview process is not a bad idea. Like, like to say, like, what is your ambition? Like, what, did, what is your goal? Where do you, what are you trying to accomplish as a professional uh, in this space? And it's, I, I think people think of it as, uh, uh, as sort of cheesy, but the idea of getting someone to project out a little ways at, at the very least and say like, you know, here's what I'd like to learn. Here's what I'd like to do. Here's how I'd like to be different at the end of the next one year or three years, five years kind of a thing. Um, the reason why that's so important is not only so you can understand whether or not someone's a rock star or a superstar, but you can, through this kind of conversation, you can actually understand like what is really motivating this person? Like what's got them excited? And it's really important to understand that like one of, it's not a one and done situation. This is the kind of conversation that you want to revisit relatively regularly, um, like once or twice a year, because things change for people. Uh, and that's normal and natural for things to change. Uh, and not only is it helpful for you to think about your overall development plan, but it's also really helpful for positioning the feedback that you give to someone. Like if they, you see someone doing something, uh, let's say you have, let's forget Rockstar and Superstar for a second, but let's say you see someone who you know their ambition is to run their own practice at some point, and you see them doing something 
like really inefficient with their scheduling or something like that. Like mm -hmm. you might want to give them feedback about like just as part of the current practice, like I need you to be more thoughtful about how you schedule so we don't have whatever issues coming up. Um, but if you know that their ambition is to run their own practice at some point, uh, you can say it like this is an essential skill, like the ability to like look at these kinds of schedules and kind of preemptively judge like, oh, it's going to be better to build in buffer here and there. Like I can imagine situations where you want like that feedback is going to be much more powerful when you know like, hey, this is something this person really, really cares about. Uh, so it's really valuable to have this information, not just for long term development, but also for feedback conversations in terms of like how you think strategically about hiring. It, I don't know enough about the business to give like concrete advice about like what the mix should be, but all organizations that are growing uh, need some mix of superstars and rock stars. If your organization is, is has reached a steady state, if it has plateaued, then you know you you want to be very thoughtful about. You're going to be want to want to be even more thoughtful about the mix you have of sort of like superstars and rock stars, so you don't have a problem where you're sort of like constantly retraining people because of attrition. Yeah. Um, but if your business is growing um, or your objective is to grow your business, um, you're going to want some rock stars. You're going to want some, uh, and you're also going to want some superstars who you can give more work to, just like you were describing before, right? Who you can say like, you know, we're going to open a new site. I want you to lead this site or, or uh, maybe we want to bring in, you know, maybe the business has been mostly focused on, um, you know, family therapy and we example, want to do, you want to introduce couples therapy or something, you know what I'm saying? Like you could imagine different situations where you want to expand the practice in some way. And as a leader, it can feel like it's my responsibility to do that, but that's going to, you're going to drown in the number of things that are your responsibility to like figure out how to do. And instead like elevating someone to a position of leadership who's really interested in growing um, can be a really great way to retain them longer. And also a really great way for you to get leverage. Yeah. Um, is there a third category that is in a workplace aside from rock stars and superstars or are those people that should be fired? <laughs> yeah. Should everyone fall into eventually a category of being a rock star or a superstar? Um, or Ideally, is, is there yeah. like just regular old people that kind of are okay? Yeah. So I, I think like <laughs> there is a, my general belief is like, there's no such thing as like a low potential human being or a low capability human being. There's like, there's like a high degree of like fit match to like the role and context that somebody's in, or there's a low degree of fit and match to like the role or context that somebody is in. And so if you have people that are just okay at their job, like that seems problematic to me. <laughs> like that seems like you have not done a great job of hiring because my, I, I've met a lot of people through the course of this work. And I can tell you that like, there are people who are passionate about like, as I'm not sure you all understand this too, just like talking to people so much, like passionate about so many different things. And so like accepting someone who is phoning it in, I think is bad mm. for, for business. And the reason is not only because like they may not be doing such a good job in their particular role, but when somebody is not actually engaged and interested in what they do, that affects the people who work with them as well. Right. Like yeah. that, that, um, People have very 
human beings have very sensitive sort of BS detectors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they can tell when someone's kind of phoning it in and doesn't really care about their work. And the fact that you as the business owner are allowing someone like that to work on the team who doesn't like maybe doesn't care about the patients as much, doesn't respect the doc, the, the clinician's time as much. Um, like the, yeah, we have, we, we might think that lots of people are leaving because they want to start their own practice, but like probably it's the case that there are lots of these other small things that make it hard to want to stay um, in, in a practice. And I think having people who don't fall into one of those categories is often um, sort of an undersold uh, detractor from working in a place long term. That's good feedback. I like that. Um, I think what happens in, in our um, industry that might make someone not be a rock star or a superstar uh, may be less about them liking the work that they do, but more um, not being great at it yet, or, um, you know, just learning how to be a good therapist. Cause I guess how we gauge success for our clinicians is that um, they have, you know, good retention with clients that people don't come once and leave um, because then that for us would signal that, that, that therapist like there's no way that that therapist is a, a miracle worker who can help someone in one session. And so if, let's say they they have a, a ton of people coming in and we're referring just 20 people every single month to the same person. And they're all, all of, of that person's clients are staying one, two times. Um, yeah. That for us would, I guess, would signal that they're not a rock star or a superstar because um, that's just really what their work is. They might be great at doing their notes. They might be great at scheduling and, you know, doing all of the other parts of their job, but the the main thing of seeing clients might not be their strong suit yet. Um, And so I guess it would still kind of lead in the same direction with what you were saying, um, which is it comes back down to our training as leaders, helping them become a better therapist with seeing their clients, maybe having them take more continuing education um, or, uh, you know, if all of that has been done and they still are not uh, to the point of being a rock star and being rock solid in the work that they're doing is, you know, letting them go. And it might be less about them not caring, but just, I don't know, therapy is, uh, is, is a, it takes, it takes a little bit of time to kind of acquire that skill and, and take the information that we learn. And it takes, I think, time just practicing therapy for us to get really good at it. Um, so I can see that it may take a little bit of time for us to, help our clinicians get to that um, rock star sort of place. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that's exactly, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's exactly the goal is like, you should, everybody on your team should be able to be a rock star. Um, And the, your objective as a leader is to give them the support and feedback that they need that you can offer uh, in order to get them there. But like, sometimes it's the case that you have someone who you think might be really great in five years, but like, you don't have the time, like you don't have the space in your practice to do that. And I think that's also okay to admit, like, I like, I believe in this person's potential, but I don't have the ability to support them in learning what they need to learn. Um, like, that's also quite, quite an important thing to, to be able to admit, because they're, what you're trying to avoid is like the death march of, of various kinds, right? Where it's sort of like, that you know things are very unlikely to work and yet you keep trying to work at them and actually working at them so hard is like taking away your energy from like doing other things that your business needs in order to be successful. Like those are the types of things that we're, we you want to invo- avoid. Um, and given the what you've described of like the li- how you're likely to behave, I think most people are going to be uh, 
are going to put in a fair amount of effort. And probably the advice that they need is like, make sure that you're taking a step back regularly to say like, is the juice worth the squeeze? Like, am I getting the like the results from the effort that I think I need in order to be successful in order to make, help um, give this person the opportunity to be a rock star? Is that working or is it not working? And like, if it's not working, I think it's okay to say it's not like it's not working. Uh, yeah, I think we, we tend to stay much longer with someone um, before letting them go. I, I don't, we're, we're not an industry that feels comfortable letting people go. And so we'll, yeah. we'll bend over backwards and give them 8 million tries and never put, yeah. you know, any kind of performance plans in place and just um, continuously um, either deal with it or give very um, sugar-coated feedback because we don't want to be mean. Ruinous empathy. Um, and uh, yeah, and so we tend to stay way longer until, until we're at a point of exhaustion or resentment um, or just really disliking our own business because this thing isn't getting fixed. You know, this issue with this person is just continuing way longer than we wanted. So that definitely yeah. makes sense. And maybe the energy could be put into like, so like often we get into this uh, mindset that's sort of binary, like this person can be successful here or they can't be successful. Um, and instead, maybe what we should be thinking when we find ourselves in those moments is like, hey, is there another practice that actually has, that, that might have the support that this person needs? Is there someone who might be a better teacher to this person? Like, can I connect them with somebody else that might actually help them? Like, instead of like putting yourself in the position of like, I need to fix this or it is an unfixable problem, <laughs> like looking outside of ourselves for the idea that like, hey, maybe somebody else can help resolve this issue. Um, and I don't think it's admitting defeat. I think it's sort of just admitting like right now, like that we don't have like the combination of you and me in this practice, like we don't have all the ingredients that we need in order to make you successful. That's, that's not defeat. That's actually success. Defeat is like the resentment. Yes. That, that is when you have lost. Yeah. <laughs> when you're about to throw the towel in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, okay. I want to ask one last question um, that sure. kind of wraps this all together. How can we start to create um, a radically candid workplace um, if we already have staff, I, it's much easier when if you read this book before you've hired anyone because you can start on the right foot. But um, everyone who's listening to the, this podcast is going to be people who already have employees um, working for them. And so how can we um, start to create this um, kind of workplace? Yeah. So this is the question I get asked most often by most of the clients that I work with. Um, and so hopefully I have a reasonably good answer. <laughs> uh, so the, from my perspective, like the hardest part about this is that, um, is, is that it can't be just tops down or just bottoms up. Like you can't expect people to get better at receiving feedback, for example, and you can't expect to get better at giving feedback, um, like overnight. That's just not possible. And so there's no like, there's no magic pill that I that I have. There's no like silver bullet that I have to offer. And I think if I did, like I'd be a much richer person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so like bad news first is that it's hard work. Um, but the good news is there's a lot of things that leaders have influence and control over that they often don't think they have influence and control over. Um, and, and so a lot of this, I think, starts with uh, leaders finding it within themselves to get curious about what is working and not working in their businesses and actually asking their team members for feedback. 
Because one of the hardest parts about building an environment more radical candor, like the, the caring personally combined with challenging directly is likely to happen, is that, as we said before, it's sort of unnatural. And for a lot of people, they haven't been in an environment like that. They've never experienced it. They've never seen people who are good at it. And so part of it is like realizing that what you need to do as a leader is start to normalize the idea that feedback is really valued and really important to the success and development of everybody that works there. And the best way that you have to show that is by taking some feedback, some criticism yourself with some grace. Uh, and so that's really where I would start is like, if you haven't actually sat down with each of your clinicians um, or team members and had a conversation about how they, what they see working or not working in the business, uh, what you could be doing better in order to make the business more successful, or you could be doing better to help them be more successful. Like that is definitely the place to start. Um, and I think, you know, in, in addition, in parallel with that, like share the concept, like share this idea with people. Kim has done a bunch of really great 20 minute versions of the talk. Um, and if you like the idea, I think start, um, uh, you can start even by having a conversation about it to say like, hey, this is a thing um, that I've been sort of inspired by and I'm kind of interested in trying some of these ideas out as part of, uh, as part of this practice. Um, and so I want to introduce this to you. And we actually have a discussion guide, which could be really useful to people if they went this route, um, where they could look and see like how, how to have a conversation or what kinds of conversation topics there are about you know, radical candor, especially when people are new to it. So it's really um, so the combination can- of those two things. I'll link, I'll link to that um, in the show notes because I, I saw that on the website. So I'll make sure to link to that, that space right. that you were mentioning. Yeah. Um, and then I think the, the like, so the overall order of operations, right, is like share the idea, solicit feedback yourself, um, then offer praise and then offer criticism. I think uh, we're, we're often in the position of feeling like, the thing we need to do is, is like correct. Um, we need to correct behavior. We need to offer some corrective action. Um, but we don't, what we want to avoid is we want to avoid the word feedback becoming synonymous with the word criticism uh, because yeah. they're not the same. They're not the same thing. And in fact, in most businesses, right, if you have a successful practice, um, if you're not, you know, constantly pleading clients and at the risk of going out of business or whatever, like that means more things are going right than are going wrong. But like how many times have you recognized like what's actually going well? And I think when we think about praise, we often think about it in a very sort of surface level or trivial way where it's like nice work. Instead, it should be just the way that we think about criticism, which is like, hey, when you do this, this is the impact that it has on the business, on your team members? Um, are you aware of that? And what can we do in order to either continue like, ha- to have that positive impact or to stop having that negative impact? Like The structure of the conversation can be exactly the same. It's just in one case, the challenge you get to at the end is like, how can you do more of this? And the other case, the challenge at the end is like, how can you do less of this? <laughs> like, yeah. how can you like, that's really the only difference between praise and criticism. We often think about them as like totally different things. Yeah. Um, so you want to be thoughtful about like, as you start to have these conversations, are you only noticing people when they're doing something wrong? Or are you also noticing people when they're doing something really well? I love that. And that's a, a great way to, to end this conversation is uh, sure. making sure that we're, um, noticing the things that our clinicians and our staff are doing right and making sure that we um, 
let them know that specifically. And like you said, not just a, a good job, but I really liked when you did this thing. And when you did this thing, this is what happened. And um, yeah, if you can do more of that, or if I can help you do more of that, that would be amazing. Um, I love it. Okay. Um, how can uh, listeners find you? Because um, I know that you guys um, offer services and stuff as well. Is it at the radicalcandor.com website? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Radicalcandor.com. Uh, and uh, I'm really easy to reach. I'm just Jason at Radical Candor. So feel free to reach out directly if you have uh, other questions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me and, and talking about this really awesome concept. It was really nice talking to you and getting to meet you in person, sort of. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so have a good one. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye. 